Welcome to Talking Beats. I hope you'll subscribe and give us a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash talkingbeats. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash talkingbeats. We believe now more than ever in providing a platform for individuality, free thought, and a diverse range of views. By supporting the show this way, you'll get early access to episodes, bonus episodes, and much more. And remember, the conversation is always active at Talking Beats Podcast on social media. On today's program, we're speaking with a rising star of the Democratic Party, Mayor Adrian Perkins of Shreveport, Louisiana. He served eight years in the United States military where he was deployed to both Iraq and Afghanistan. He received a bronze star for his service. The West Point and Harvard Law School graduate is now running for the United States Senate, and I'm pleased he's joining me, Mayor Adrian Perkins. Welcome. Of course. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. So, Mayor Perkins, you have had a drive to serve in the public. Where does that come from? This community gave me so much, right? Like my my background is from right here in Shreveport, where I'm serving as mayor from one of the poorest neighborhoods in Shreveport named Cedar Grove. And my mother raised me and my two older brothers. My father left when I was three and my mom had to work multiple jobs and we still were around the poverty line. You know, I watched my mother work 60 hour, 60 hour, 80 hour weeks, a clean office buildings with her at night or pick me up from school and she would go and earn her degree. So in, that, in being able to climb from that situation to being to being able to go to West Point, get a nomination at West Point and be the first African-American graduate to be class president and serving in our military and being awarded the Bronze Star. And I do feel indebted to this community, not just my mother, but to my educators here who, you know, stayed after class to make sure that I got that concept and I kept my grades up so that I can get into West Point to the people at my church that made sure I understood faith and I was grounded in faith. And, you know, even some of the deacons who told me to pull my pants up or made sure I was wearing a belt on Sundays. You know, it was a lot of people in this community that really poured into me as a child. And I feel very indebted to them. So, you know, I do feel like I'm giving back in a sense, but I also get a lot out of it as well. Uh, being able to uh, have influence over my hometown and kind of set the stage for the generations coming behind us and making sure that this is a safer community, a community with more opportunities, a community that's actually um, embracing technology and really upgrading itself so it can be prepared for the future. Uh, that means a great deal. And I get a lot out of that as well. Let's talk about technology, your personal response to the pandemic. You were lauded nationally, probably internationally, for your early response to the pandemic. Everybody knows that Louisiana was one of the early uh, hot spots, one of the early brush fires in this forest fire that is COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2. Your response was lauded because you melded prescience and technology and awareness. Frankly, your state could have used more of that. What do you think you did that made people look to you and say, that guy's onto something? Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm going to be honest, being a young leader, being a millennial, and I say young relative to, to the other people in this career, but being a young leader helped because I grew up with technology, with a lot more technology than a lot of my colleagues did. So that's the reason why it was so important for me as soon as I came into office to hire Shreveport's first chief technology officer and make sure he wasn't just running an IT department, 
but what he was doing was making sure he was upgrading city services across the board. So he is one of my chief advisors. So when I talk to my chief administrative officer about operations of the city, as often as I'm talking to him, I'm also talking to my chief technology officer. So when we were confronted with this massive problem with this public health crisis, I was I was talking to my both of my chiefs and I was like, hey, how can we best address this problem? Like, how can we utilize technology right now to try to slow the virus down? And my chief administrative officer was like, hey, maybe we should geolocate where these were their concentration of this virus and do more targeted messaging in those areas. And my chief technology officer said, that's great. Like, we can definitely do that. And he printed up the maps quick. And as we reviewed it, I acknowledge, I said, hey, this is highly concentrated in our inner city neighborhood, our black neighborhoods. Um, we need to target, you know, we need to talk about this and let people know that this virus is having a disproportionate impact on minorities. So not only was I at the forefront when it came to utilizing technology, because the state hadn't even started that conversation yet, um, but also we were at the forefront and acknowledging the fact that it was disproportionately affecting minority communities here as well. And I, again, I just, I kind of, thank my team for them being uh for them equipping me with the tools and the advice to look at the problem in that manner uh but ultimately i'm the one who made the decision to move forward with it and be public with it uh because there was some people saying oh you could create a stigma for these neighborhoods or oh it can be harmful here uh and i just um i knew it was way more important to keep those people safe to slow the, the spread of that virus in my community um than it was to be politically correct or to be you know I don't know, sensitive to, to adjacent matters at that point in time. Isn't running a city hard enough uh, without a pandemic? <laughs> yeah, and it is. Oh, yeah, it really is. I mean, this job, um, the job was already one of the hardest things I'd ever done on a, on a management scale. It was a huge jump for me as a my last job in the military as a company commander. My company could balloon to about 200 people. Uh, and now running a city, I have 3000 employees. I have 14 departments. This is a strong mayor form of government. So I'm in the weeds. I have to be a technocrat and the, you know, symbolic leader of the city. So, yes, running a city was already very difficult. And then this year I've told people multiple times this has been the hardest you know, year of my life, uh, even if you include combat, trying to manage crisis after crisis after crisis on top of this already busy job. We're going to go to combat a little later. I, I I want to go to the the inspiration. What happened to you on nine eleven? That that was sort of a, a paradigm shift for you. Uh, but but first, to talk about the state of Louisiana versus where you are. The mayor of Shreveport. You're you're running to represent the state of Louisiana. Uh, it's very different. The city of New Orleans from where you are. Shreveport. Paint a picture for people. I I there may be some misconceptions. It's a very diverse state as you travel through. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, and I'll. So Shreveport's the third largest city in Louisiana. Uh, we have roughly 200,000 people, uh, but it is a very spread out city. We're about the size of Cincinnati. We just do not have that population. Uh, it's about 130 plus square miles here in Shreveport, and we're tucked in the northwest corner of the state. So when people say, oh, you're from Louisiana, are you from New Orleans? I say, actually, I'm not. I'm from the opposite, the exact opposite side of the state with New Orleans sitting to the southeast. Uh, so it's a very interesting blend up here because we are just minutes away from the Arkansas and Texas border, but yet we're still Louisiana. And so we have that heavy Louisiana culture as well. Uh, and we are very different. The people that is so many jokes between Southern Louisianians and Northern uh, Louisiana, but I mean, you hear it everywhere, right? Like 
North Cal and SoCal and, you know, people in New York saying everything outside of New York City is upstate. So it's, it's, a, it's a dynamic similar to that and uh, what we see. But we've been traveling the state a lot and I've spent a lot of time in New Orleans. New Orleans, you know, is uh, the largest city in the state and they also have the largest Democratic voting bloc. So you have to capture New Orleans if you're going to be successful uh, in running as a Democrat in this state. So I've been spending a lot of time in New Orleans, but I've also bounced around to plenty of other parishes and cities throughout the state. In Louisiana is special. We have parishes. We don't have counties. So I don't want anybody to think I'm talking about like Catholic precincts or anything. These are these are our counties here uh, that I'm, I'm visiting quite often. And we're really getting around as much as possible. But clearly there are limitations with COVID-19 and the fact that I'm still running a city. What happened on 9-11 that, that said to you internally uh, you want to go into combat? You've talked about being at the tip of the spear. What did you mean by that? And then we're going to bring bring it back to wanting to go into the boxing ring that is the U.S. Senate. Yeah. So I'll set the stage a little bit to give some background. Despite my like upbringing in the neighborhood I was from, by the time I was in high school, I was a pretty successful high school student. I was an all-state athlete. I was my class president. I was you know an honor student. And I got recruited by a lot of schools throughout the country. I didn't know much about those schools. And I was pretty fearful of like the big names like Harvard and Columbia and all that. But I did know about LSU and I knew I I loved art at the time. I loved architecture at the time. And I thought I would go to LSU and be an architect or an engineer or something. By the way, if, if, if I could just interrupt, tell you quickly, we've had two probably architects who you love very much on this show, Moshe Safdi and Daniel Liebeskind. Both have been on here. This may be a career I can get into one day. We'll, we'll see. Maybe, maybe I'll, I'll do that next. We'll see. But that was, some, that was very impressive. I'm very familiar with them. That's, that's super impressive. Uh, and now, now I have even bigger shoes to fill uh, on the show. Uh, no. But uh, so, yeah, so I'm, I find myself in high school. I'm looking to go to LSU to be an architect or an engineer and run track there. And then 9-11 happened when I was a junior. And it happened. I was sitting in my biology two classroom and a teacher next door barged into the room. She whispered something into my teacher's ear. My teacher's eyes got super big and she ran over to the TV. She turned it on and we saw the world, one of the first World Trade Center on fire. And she was like, you know, oh, my God, she was speechless. And she was like, I I think, you know, we think we don't know what happened yet, but we could be under attack. That's what she said. And we watched the second tower get hit that morning. And I, I remember the fear on my classmates faces. I remember, you know, leaving school that day and seeing how panicked parents were. You know, at that time, you think parents like know it all or don't know anything, depending on what kind of teenager you are. Uh, And watching my family and how afraid they were. And that day is when I made the decision that I was going to I was not going to LSU to run track, but I was going to go into the military. I was going to accept the nomination to West Point and I was going to go and serve my country. Uh, in that way and stand in between my family and the people that perpetrated those attacks. I really wanted to protect my family. And in making the decision to go into the military, I didn't want to just go into the military to be uh, an administrator. I wanted to actually be involved. I wanted to actually be at the tip of the spear. In making the decision, I decided that I would go in and be what's called combat arms at the tip of the spear, meaning those are the people that actually leave the forward operating bases and go on patrol. Those are the ones that are engaging the enemies directly, or you could be doing a softer mission, like providing school supplies to areas of Iraq or Afghanistan where we've built schools, or providing supplemental funding to farmers uh, so that they don't get 
tempted by the uh, Taliban or something like this. So it was a very interesting mission. But the point of it is that I was actually out there risking my life and around our, my soldiers who were risking their, their lives every single day because of our proximity to the enemy. And only certain branches, only some certain branches of the army gives you that kind of direct contact. So I chose one that would ensure me that kind of direct contact as I was in the military and particularly on deployments. Three tours of duty, Iraq, Afghanistan, and then Harvard Law School. Uh, then you, you were at Harvard Law School. What happened at, at Harvard Law School? What, what made you think to yourself, maybe there's a public service outlet here instead of going to a big firm in uh, New York, D.C. or Boston, uh, which would have been uh, pretty easy at that point? Yeah. Well, I started off that way. My first summer at Harvard, I actually spent here working for the governor and I was assigned to do research on the criminal justice reform bill here in Louisiana that saved the state millions of dollars. And it's taken the state from the most incarcerated state in the country uh, to I think we're the second right now. I know we got a lot more work to do, but we at least, you know, are smarter with our criminal justice system now than we were in the past. I was able to do research on that criminal justice reform bill. And in seeing that bill pass, it definitely put something in me to say, hey, public interest should be an option for you, but I wasn't sold yet. And I'll also tell you a bit about my law school journey in this, you know, to provide a little bit more context. I was the first person in my family to go to law school and I'm the grandson of a sharecropper. There was nobody to tell me what to do in law school or what path I should take besides what you see on TV. And that's not very accurate at all, to be clear with you. So I was feeling my way around law school in the first summer, like I said, I decided, hey, I would go back home and opportunity presented itself. And I loved it. But being there for my second year, uh, the influences at Harvard and, and my classmates were saying, hey, you need to go to a corporate law firm. That's what everybody is doing. And that is what everybody did. So I went to a corporate law firm my second summer. I, I was a summer associate at Sidley Austin in Los Angeles. It's the same firm that Barack and Michelle worked at actually out of the Chicago office. And I loved it. I mean, it was a great environment, very intellectual, intellectually challenging. It was like, okay, I considered it for a while. I said, hey, you know, the amount of money that I would make here, the intellectual tools that I would get from doing this job could serve me for years and years to come. It could break generational curses of my family with this amount of, you know, making this much money. Like, this is a great opportunity. But while I was thinking those thoughts, I was still remembering the impact that I had when I came back here my first summer. I was still remembering the debt that I felt in my heart that I owed to my community for all that they had poured into me. And I was watching my city go down a path that I wasn't very comfortable with. So I was weighing whether or not the skills that I had acquired up to that point, if it could be helpful in being a leader of my city. So I, I started to think about, uh, in the face of this offer from Sidley Austin, I started to think about running for mayor. Uh, and people were engaging me at the same time. It's a funny story, but I recorded a video in running for student body president that went viral back here at home. So people start telling me, oh, you should come home. You should come home about the same time all this was going on. So I made myself a deal. I said I would go back to Shreveport and do an exploratory period my first semester of my third year of law school. So I would spend more time in Shreveport than I spent in Cambridge just to see if people were interested in a young you know, leader talking about technology where nobody had talked about it before. And I quickly realized there was an appetite for change in my community. So I made the decision to bypass the offer to go and work in corporate law. And 
run for mayor of my hometown when I was a third-year law student. So far, it's worked out. Mayor Perkins, I, I want to ask a little bit about the role of the humanities, about the role of culture, of art and music in our cities, in our states, in our society at large during the pandemic. You can imagine that arts in the United States didn't have a huge amount of help from the government pre-pandemic. Everybody's suffering financially now. I've been in music my whole life. I've seen the power. I've seen the transformative power of music everywhere from here to the Philippines, the Middle East, all over the world, every corner of the world where I've played. I see the reaction in people. I think it's the most powerful unifying force that we have. The United States has a pretty awful track record of funding arts, of funding music. What role do you see that the arts, the humanities, can play in bringing people together in not just educating people in the sense of broadening the worldview, as I put that in quotes, which I think they do, but in terms of creating more responsible, more civic-minded citizens? I think I have an interesting perspective on this, and I might be over-appreciating my perspective, but the fact that I grew up and I was an artist uh, I was I really considered myself an artist. I loved art. I was actually selected for my city has a program where they pick the top 20, top 30 students in the city called Project Talent. Uh, and you go and you are trained by professional artists uh, a couple times a week. And I did that program when I was in high school. I was selected for that program and did it in high school. And then at West Point, I majored in economics, more of a hard science. At least economists like to think that they're hard scientists. Uh, and then I went on my next phase of education was, you know, more of a social science with, with the law. Uh, so I think I've like kind of gone back and forth between like math and, and art and, 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 and that throughout my life. And I tell you right now, there's a huge emphasis on STEM in our country because we need to produce more engineers. You know, the technology is becoming way too pervasive and everything. And I tell people that we got to be extremely careful with that because a lot of the bigger problems that we have to solve and that computers can't solve uh, at this time are problems that aren't just black and white and that numbers can solve. Uh, it takes leaders and it takes staffs that are extremely diverse, not in just race or, or anything, but in experience uh, and educational background. And art helps with it. The United States, we have to be more balanced as we're trying to steer students and we're talking about STEM just because we've been insufficient with investing in STEM over the years, we shouldn't now solely and unilaterally and be and be parochial in how we educate the future of America. If 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 the arts, if music, if if you know painting, if all of that stuff falls off, we're gonna lose a very critical part of our society that we can't afford to to, to lose. And I would say it's just as important. Uh, if anything, these people, the, the students that are going into STEM, I think would greatly benefit from some balance in their education uh, so that they can identify where their true passion lies. You know, I thought I would be an artist. I ended up being uh, a military soldier because of the environment around me and the things that were presented to me. And I think if we only present a narrow set of options to our future, I consider young people our future. If we consider if we only put a narrow set of options in front of our young people then we'll, be, we'll get an extremely limited outcome that we cannot afford considering where we are today. A very well-known Louisiana native, Walter Isaacson, was actually the first guest on this podcast. And I said to him directly, I said, I said, Walter, do 
the humanities need loud, outright defenders, sort of, I, I said, banging the sticks on the pots in the streets, yelling. Uh, and and this, this was a while back. He said it was pre-pandemic. He said, no, they defend themselves. And, and then right in the beginning of the pandemic, I... I, I, and at that point, I didn't know if I agreed with him or not. I was sort of on the fence. He said they're so powerful, they defend themselves. I see STEM pretty much dominating everywhere. I agree with you, though. And, and let, I'm sorry, let me give you a more practical example. So I'm the mayor. You know, I, t- I talked about my city a bit. I have a budget of about $220 uh, million a year. That was my That's my operating budget. I have a capital budget of about $300 million a year. With a operating budget, I live in a city that... We, you know, half of it goes to public safety, half of it goes to overhead, like 70% are, you know, personnel costs. I say all that to say I have a very finite amount of discretionary funding, even in that $220 million. Well, the Shreveport Regional Arts Council is one of our appropriations. We give them over, I think, over $100,000 a year, about $100,000 a year. I am positive that with the financial constraints that we've been under, I inherited a a budget of negative $1.2 million, a deficit of $1.2 million in the first year. And then even with me bringing that up and actually balancing the budget in the first year and creating a $4 million surplus this year with COVID-19 hit. A leader without my background and knowing how important arts are and knowing how important Shreveport Regional Arts Council is and how it impacted my life as a child and how it actually paid for that program that I mentioned earlier, Project Talent. I think a leader without those experience would have cut that budget. There are a lot of instances at the local level or at the micro level where I don't think the arts have the ability to defend themselves if they had had some kind of touch point in our leaders' lives. Mayor Perkins, where do you fit into the Democratic Party? You're, you're not running from exactly the most liberal state in the country. You're, you're not in Cambridge, Massachusetts right now. Where do you fit in? And, and, and let me just, just frame that in a way and, and ask you, this is a sort of parenthetical, I wonder how much of what you really believe politically are you able to put in your platform? For example, it may be an obvious question. I'm not a professional political pundit. How much do you want to say, this this is what I really believe, but this isn't going to fly here, so screw it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is such an interesting question to ask. Again, I'm sorry I'm doing these sidebars, but I, when I started running for office, I was in Cambridge in law school for a week out of the month, and then I was here for about three weeks out of the month. So if you're talking about having to like use multiple parts of your brain and multiple experience going back and forth. Like that was crazy because Cambridge is an extremely liberal place. And then Louisiana, even in a democratic city of Shreveport is relatively conservative. So in my approach to leading, being an elected official, I approach it as a statesman. So, and, and what I mean by that is even if my ideas aren't 100% aligned with the people that I'm seeking to represent, if I know that it's right, and that there is a super urgent concern for it, I'm going to push it anyway, even if it's unpopular. And when the, the example I can give to you is technology. On the campaign trail, everybody wanted public safety. Everybody wants to live in a safe neighborhood. That's an easy sell. You say that, you got everybody. Everybody wants better jobs, economic development, easy sell. You got everybody. You just tell them how you're going to do it. Technology was something that a lot of people, especially older voters, which make up the majority of voters, they hadn't quite heard talking about smart city initiatives went over their head. When I talked about universal access to broadband and what that would do for our children in the inner cities, when I talked about the digital divide went over their head. And 
I still pushed it because I knew how important it would be. And I knew that as their leader, I would very much continue this conversation and I didn't want to be disingenuous. Now, those are more technical presentations and you asked more something more ideological. So I'll say ideologically, the same kind of framework applies. So uh, when it comes to me getting an opportunity to run an experiment for UBI here in, in Shreveport, 80% of people here would tell me that would be crazy because people would say, oh, you're a socialist. Oh, you know, it's just no way that's going to work here. But due to my background, I know that there are people out there working over 40 hours a week, making minimum wage, who can't even afford an apartment in Louisiana. Knowing the implications of that, not only on that person, but on their family, on, their, on our community, knowing broadly that our economy does not work for half of Americans, I am still going to do that UBI trial proudly and let the citizens of my community know, hey, I understand if you feel this way about it, but this is the reason why I am putting this in front of you. Uh, this is, you know, this is my belief. I think at a minimum, we should try it out. We should see what uh, comes of it. And if it's successful, if it works, if we have enough evidence to say it can remedy a lot of our problems, then we should pursue it. And a lot of times, I don't see that kind of courage in politics. I see people that conform completely to the environment that they're in. And I don't think that that's right. I don't think that that's genuine. And I don't think that type of conformity is actually going to push communities in the direction that they need to go and really create the progress that we need as a society. We can't rest on our laurels and say America is perfect as is, or Shreveport is perfect as is. We have to always be trying to get better. If you love this country, you should be a critic of it. You should try to figure out ways to make things better. So I would say the parts where I'm misaligned with, with, my, with Shreveport or with Louisiana, I think that's okay. Uh, it makes me listen more to, to the other side of arguments. And it also makes me very calculated and very deliberate when I do step outside to push us in a particular direction. It's kind of like silver bullets. And I'm making sure that I'm being deliberate on how far we can go forward. And it was a very deliberate answer to the question, too. <laughs> well, well, <laughs> I've thought about this a lot. Trust me. <laughs> uh, uh, Mayor, I, I, you know, no one gets off this program, no matter who they are, without talking just a little bit about music, because it is called Talking Beats. And I ask everybody, because, as I said, it's the great unifier. And Louisiana is a big music state. Uh, what do you love? What, what do you put on when you need to get the hell away from everything? Yeah, I'm going to tell you. Funny thing, I don't know if you follow me on social media or whatever, but I made I rarely post about like personal stuff, but I made this post the other day and I said, I am strangely listening to two albums right now. One, the Hamilton soundtrack, which I put off for so long. I'm such a latecomer to Hamilton. I like pushed it off forever. I didn't want to like it and I love it. And I've been listening to it for like two, three weeks straight now. And the other one, Nas. Uh, just came out with a new CD and I've been listening to the Nas CD. So I'm a, I'm a hip hop head too. I love hip hop and I've been listening to those a lot. But as far as music, go, I love all the music. I really listen to, I'm from Louisiana. I listen to jazz a lot in the mornings. Uh, if I have some, you know, some time to just like write and work on paperwork and people aren't barging in my office constantly or calling me constantly, I have jazz playing in the background. And uh, I, yeah, I mean, you can just point to anything, R&B, alternative rock like i listen i listen to all kind of music and i think it's very helpful it's pulled me out of so many like i don't know just ruts 
that I've been in and just listen to like a really good song. And I think it's always going to be that way for me. I think one of the greatest things people say, oh, you're so talented. You got this resume. I think one of the one of my, my, my greatest disappointments is that I don't know how to play a musical instrument and I can't sing. <laughs> so I can't participate at all. I just get to listen. I get to be in the audience. Uh, we need people in the audience. Mayor, what are you optimistic about as you look forward to the fall? Yeah. So optimistic in general or personally, like for something well, for me? Well, well, okay. I'll say in general, what I'm optimistic about is young people, man. It's, it's, I've just had it reinforced time and time again, as I've spoken to high school students or college students, that young people are so progressive and so engaged. I mean, when you want to, you want to talk about the environment in Louisiana, find somebody that's like 23 or below. If you want to talk about, you know, if you want to get somebody to applaud you for UBI or, or these very progressive ideals, I mean, you talk to young people. If you want to get somebody to talk about a broadband internet and universal access to broadband and the digital divide, like our young people are so engaged, so smart, so, so promising of a future that we have here in Louisiana. And that's something that we should all be optimistic about. And I would say we can't take them for granted or take that for granted. We have to keep them engaged. We have to give them an environment that they are encouraged in and empowered and they want to save and work on and improve. So we still have some work to do as well, but the young people of our state are uh, by far the, the best of us. And I'm, I'm proud to be working alongside of them and giving them a candidate that's gonna be uh, kind of expounding their voices real well and, 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 and multiplying their voices. On a personal note, what I'm looking forward to is uh, sleeping uh, after this is all said and done. Honestly, I I really want to I really want to have like a lazy weekend. That's that's my big goal. I want to <laughs> I want to have a lazy weekend where I just like read books and and drink coffee and and hang out. You don't look particularly tired if if that's any consolation. Good, <laughs> good, good. I loved it. Yeah, yeah, I loved it. Mayor Adrian Perkins, I wish you all the best. You're a compelling figure. I thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate the time. You've been listening to Talking Beats with Daniel Lalchuk. I hope you'll subscribe and leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. The original theme music for this program is by Ronald Markham. The content coordinator is Nathaniel Mosse. Doug Christian is the executive producer. I'm Daniel Lalchuk. See you next time.